I'd like to invite you this morning as we turn to the Word of God to look in your Bibles at Romans chapter 3. Romans 3. The title of this morning's message is God's Judgment of and Yet Promises to Israel. Even though we have now come to Romans 3 in our study of this crucial letter of Paul to the Romans, the Apostle Paul has not yet finished his discussion of the Jews and their judgment by God. As you may remember, we are in a long section of the book of Romans, which extends all the way from chapter 1, verse 18, through chapter 3, verse 20. And this portion of the letter treats the matter of God's righteous judgment against both Jews and Gentiles and their utter sinfulness. Beginning with 118 of Romans and going through the end of the chapter, that is chapter 1, Paul dealt with the general aspects of man's depravity and also very specifically with the Gentiles or the pagan world And he said there that they deserve the righteous wrath of God. And from verse 1 of chapter 2, Paul has been specifically detailing the righteousness of God's judgment against the Jews, God's chosen people. We've been taking a very close look at each paragraph of chapter 2 having finished it last Lord's Day. And it might seem now that we are heading into chapter 3, at this point in Paul's argument regarding the judgment of God, that the Jews have no longer absolutely any case to be made as they're continuing to be God's chosen people. And therefore, are not going to see God fulfill His promises which He has made to them. If they are hypocrites, as chapter 2, verses 1 to 5 says, if they are condemned, just like the Gentile world, through God's impartial judgment, as chapter 2, verses 6 to 11 says, if they cannot rely upon their mere reception of the law of God, as verses 12 to 16 say, if they cannot count on their covenant heritage, and are actually disobedient to God's law, as chapter 2, verses 17 to 24 actually says, nor can they boast in their having the sign and seal of circumcision, as verses 25 to 29 say, they appear to have no hope whatsoever. No hope. And if these things are true, and Paul has certainly been building his case about these very matters, then one might legitimately ask the question, well then, what is the real advantage of even being a Jew? And what's so special about the covenants God made with Israel? Israel has obviously forsaken those covenants, and as a result must come under the just judgment of God. All of this being true, however, 
Paul, here in Romans 3, verses 1 to 8, wants to assert that even if Israel has not lived up to their side of the covenant, does this actually nullify the divine side of the covenant? God's side? Does God now choose, because of what the Jews have done, to break His covenant with them? Does the righteous judgment of God against the Jews make it appear that God is no longer faithful to do what He once had promised? And does this then cast aspersions on God's holy character? And it is to these questions and more that Paul addresses the Romans here in chapter 3, verses 1 to 8. Let's read it together. You follow along as I read. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to His glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying? Their condemnation is just. This passage affirms both the condemnation of the Jews for their sin, but it also defends the faithfulness of God in not forsaking His just judgments, nor His ultimate promises to His people. That's the essence of this passage. And the outline of this passage could be drawn from the five questions which Paul appears to be asking here, and then himself answering. I mentioned to you before that in chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, Paul is taking on a diatribal argument, a diatribe against those who might object to what he's teaching. And this particular dialogue is between himself and a Jewish person, or maybe even the Jews in general. We don't know for certain, but it has been even suggested that because of Paul's usual custom of going into the Jewish synagogues when he entered into a city, oftentimes going in for three Sabbaths in a row, this dialogue might very well be a debate between Paul and those he encountered in those places. Or it's even been conjectured that this debate is between Paul and Paul. James Dunn writes, Paul's interlocutor, debater, was no straw man. 
In fact, we would probably not be far from the mark if we were to conclude that Paul's interlocutor is Paul himself. Paul the unconverted Pharisee expressing attitudes Paul remembered so well as having been his own. End quote. Yes, I assume that that probably has a lot to do with this. That Paul the Christian has a debater in his mind and it may be so familiar to him because it might have been Paul the unconverted Pharisee who was arguing against himself. And as I said a moment ago, what we've what we have in these verses, verses 1 to 8, are a series of five questions which Paul's objector poses to what he's been saying in chapter 2. We also have Paul's own responses to those who object to how he's framed the very character of God in these responses. And I want to go through these questions this morning with you one by one and see what the objections are and how Paul responds to them. Now I need to say at the outset that as I began to study not only the book of Romans in preparation for preaching it verse by verse, but certainly as I began to mull over the truths in this particular passage, Romans 3, 1 to 8, I ran up against what most commentators say is one of the most difficult passages in the entire book of Romans. And so, of course, I said to myself, who am I? If some of the best commentaries, if some of the best scholars, if some of the best Bible teachers have debated as to what exactly Paul means here, how am I to understand this? And I asked the Holy Spirit to guide me and to teach me and to open up the truth of His Word for me. And I believe that I've been able to assess, I think, what is the attendant issue surrounding some of these questions as each one of them are given. And with that, here is question number one. Question number one. Let's call it the advantage, the question of the advantage of the Jew. The question of the advantage of the Jew. Look at verses one and two. Paul says, then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision that's his question he has this debate going on in his mind which could very well have been a debate with actual people certainly he encountered those what is the question the question Paul is endeavoring to answer is this if a person can be a true Jew and not be ethnically a Jew and according to verses 25 to 29, if a person who is spiritually circumcised, circumcised in the heart, without being a Jew, ethnically or physically being circumcised, what possible advantage then does the Jewish person have? You can't read chapter 2 and see all of his diatribal arguments against the Jews, their heritage, their covenants, the signs, the seal, including circumcision, and then come to that particular question without that very reality in your mind. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? In other words, what advantage does the Jew have over the Gentile? 
In what way does the Jew have a leg up on the Gentile? The question is, nothing? Nothing? And he asks a two-part question here. If these two things, Jewish heritage and circumcision as a sign and seal of the covenant, are not particularly special or advantageous for the Jew, what possible advantage does a Jew then have? Anything? That's the objector. That's the antagonist. That's the question that Paul is posing that he turns right around then and answers. And based upon all that Paul has said in chapter 2, you'd fully expect to hear him say right now, there frankly is no advantage. He's given a whole list of how the Jews are equally condemned like the Gentiles because of their utter sinfulness. They can't claim privilege. They can't claim where they were born, into what family they were born, into what tribe they were born. They can't claim the advantage of having received the Mosaic law of God. They can't claim the advantage of boasting in the fact that Yahweh has chosen them, that they are circumcised as a sign and seal of the covenant, you'd expect Paul to say, frankly, there is no advantage. I've just proven it to you in the entirety of chapter 2. But instead, amazingly, Paul actually might surprise us here by saying that the Jew does in fact have an advantage. And notice what he says, verse 2, much in every way. Much in every way. What? He does have an advantage? I thought you just spent an entire chapter telling him that he doesn't have an advantage. He even uses the word value to speak of circumcision in verse 1. He says, what is the value of circumcision? And he answers, much in every way. But hasn't he just used that same word value in verse 25? of chapter 2 saying that it is of no value to the Jew if it isn't accompanied by obedience to the law here he says that the value of circumcision to the Jews is a definite advantage what's he saying what's going on here is he contradicting himself some would say yes but you have to ask the question what kind of advantage what kind of advantage Paul Verse 2, he says, much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. And he answers this first objection with that statement. The Jews have an advantage. Yes, much in every way. Why? Because they have been entrusted with the very oracles of God. Now, it is true that Paul could have gone on to give many more advantages as he does say in Romans chapter 9 verses 4 to 5 where he says this they are Israelites and to them belong the adoption the glory the covenants the giving of the law the worship and the promises to them belong the patriarchs and from their race according to the flesh is the Christ who is God over all forever blessed amen he could have mentioned all of those things. And he does, of course, when he comes to that section, speaking of Jew and Gentile in Romans 9, 10, and 11. But here, he simply says, there is an advantage, it is much in every way, and it is that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. What does that mean? 
oracles of God. Lagia. Oracles. It means God's divine utterances. As reference to God's words, God's teachings. And it may even be referring to the general nature of the Old Testament. All that is contained therein. But it might even have specific reference to the direct promises of God that He made to Israel. In Deuteronomy chapter 4 verse 8, the Bible says, And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I, Moses, set before you today? What's the rhetorical answer? There, there is no nation so blessed. There is no nation so great as one like Israel who's received the statutes and the rules so righteous as is all this law. Psalm 147 verses 19 and 20 say, He declares His word to Jacob, His statutes and rules to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know His rules. Praise the Lord. Oh, they were given a grand privilege to know the very words of God. And this particular phrase, the oracles of God, may just be Paul's shorthand way of referring to what he later expands on in Romans 9, 10, and 11, as I read it to you in verses 4 and 5 of chapter 9. Here he simply says God's teachings, God's words, and maybe specifically God's promises. What advantage does the Jew have? What is the value of circumcision? What is the promise of the covenant? Oh, that God has given His very words to the Jewish people. So Paul's answer to the Jews' first objection then is that God has given them a great advantage, a great privilege, but not as a shoe-in for salvation. You don't just... Become born into a Jewish family and by the very nature of that heritage have a shoe-in in the matter of salvation. And that's the difference. He has said in chapter 2 in several places, you must obey the law of God. You can't just be born into a Jewish family and suddenly you're in. You have to obey the law of God. It isn't just that you merely receive the law, you have to obey what you've received. That's the point. They have an advantage, but they must take care of that advantage. They have a privilege, but they must do something with that privilege. And since God is an impartial judge of the entire earth, if they sin even against this phenomenal privilege they've been given, they will be condemned and condemned even more severely why? Precisely, precisely because of their grand privilege. I think we could even see the implications of that for us. We're not Jews primarily, but Gentiles. And yet we've been privileged, as over against so many others, direct access to the Word of God, the teaching of the Bible, prayer, service, ministry, the one anothering of the New Testament, we have been given so much, and especially in this fellowship have we been given so much. God has given us men on our pastoral team who are profound in their teaching of the Word of God, who know the Word of God, who challenge you to apply the Word of God. You have the opportunity in this 
great country of ours to respond to the Word of God. We've not yet seen the kind of persecution that there is worldwide. I just read again this week in Christianity Today where another prominent pastor was taken out of his church in another part of the world, beaten and then killed. We don't have that. The privileges that we enjoy include all of the things that I've just mentioned and so much more. And the question may be asked of us, what are we doing with the privilege that we have? We have to do something with that privilege. We have to respond to the spiritual obligations that we've been given. We've been given the Word of God as well. What do we do in our own personal lives when it comes to applying the Word of God? That's the same thing Paul is saying here to the Jews. You have an advantage. There is value if you respond to what you have, if you do something with what you've received. And then there's a second question. The question of the faithfulness of God. Look at verses 3 and 4. What if some Jews, this objector states in Paul's mind, what if some Jews were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? It's a good question. And coming right out of the prior question, this would be what you'd expect. Paul's anticipating another objection. And it would go something like this. But if the Jews were entrusted with God's promises, and they were unfaithful with those promises from their side of these covenants of promise, doesn't God's judgment of them in actuality mean that God Himself is therefore unfaithful to His own promises? Doesn't that bring into question the very faithfulness of God? If God has rejected them, if He's going to judge them, if He's going to pour out His wrath upon them, doesn't that say something about God's unfaithfulness, not His faithfulness? God's made a lot of promises to these people. Is He going back on His Word? Notice that Paul says, some of the Jews. Maybe that's a generous way of characterizing the majority of them who are, as he says right here in God's Word, unfaithful or faithless. And so this interlocutor, this debater, this antagonist says, won't this negate or nullify the very faithfulness of God because He promised them a fulfillment of His covenant. What's Paul's answer? Verse 4. By no means. By no means. Exclamation point. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. You know what's happening here? When you mess with the question of the faithfulness of God and His character, these are fighting words for Paul. You don't mess with the character of God and His theology. And he uses one of the strongest negatives in the Greek language, me genoita, may it never be. This could be translated and has been in various ways. The King James Version, if that's what you're following, says, God forbid, God forbid. 
The NASB says, may it never be. The NIV, not at all. Not at all. The Phillips translation, of course not. Of course not. This does not negate or nullify the faithfulness of God. And the ESV, which I'm using this morning, by no means. No matter what happens with man, including their absolute disobedience, their utter unfaithfulness, God will always be seen as completely faithful. He will be faithful to Himself and to the unconditional promises He makes, even those He makes with His people. You can rest assured of that. That's what Paul says. Do we need to be reminded of Psalm 33, 4, which says, For the word of the Lord is upright, and all His work is done in faithfulness. All His work. Jeremiah 32, 41 says, I will rejoice in doing them, His people, good, and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness, notice, with all my heart and all my soul. What a promise. God says, I'm going to do this. I'm going to plant them in a land. I will do good to them. And by the way, I'm going to do it with all my heart and all my soul. Think God can be trusted? Hosea 2.20 I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. He's going he's to make sure of it. You remember that very familiar passage, Lamentations 3.22 and 23. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. It's not going to be vacillating. He's not going to be breaking his side of the covenant. Nothing that occurs on a human level, even the faithlessness of the Jews, will nullify. That means render powerless or to come to destroy the faithfulness of God. It won't happen. God is faithful. And let me pause for a moment and ask you as a Christian, does that encourage you about your God? Oh, that's so encouraging. That he's bedrock faithful. He is true to his word. His character is impeccable. He will not let you down. He can be trusted even when we are vacillating. Even when we let him down, God is not. You can trust him to the uttermost. But I should hasten to say that for these Jews and in the context of what Paul says here in Romans 1-3, to specifically in chapter 2, and for what we need to be reminded of, yes, God is greatly merciful. Yes, He is one who can be trusted. But He's also faithful in judgment. He's faithful to both aspects of His character. He's faithful in His mercy, but He's also faithful in His judgment. And that's the context here. God is faithful. He will be so faithful, He'll faithfully judge those whose depravity deserves His retribution. And who might that be? Jew and Gentile alike. See, the context here is judgment. And Paul goes on to say here in verse 4, Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. He's saying it's as though everyone in the entire universe is a liar if God's not true to His faithfulness. But God is true. He is faithful. He is righteous. And everyone else is a liar. 
And then he quotes King David in Psalm 51.4. That you may be justified as it is written and prevail when you are judged. Even if the entire world is judged to be liars, God remains true. And what was the context of David saying that in Psalm 51.4? Listen to it. Against you, God, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your, word, your words and blameless in your judgment. What is that psalm? We call it a penitential psalm. A psalm of repentance. It's David after his sin with Bathsheba, being found out, being confronted, repenting, and he says, God, against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And when you come to me in faithful judgment, your words are true. You prevail in this judgment. You're right. I'm wrong. And Paul says that's a good place to quote. That is precisely what God will do. He will be faithful in His judgment of sinners. You see this quotation in the context of Romans 1-3 to shows us that Paul is specifically referring to God's, we might say, judging righteousness. Oh, we glory in the fact of God's saving righteousness. We want Him to righteously save us through Christ. But we're not so sure about God's judging righteousness. We want that to be suspended. We want that to be minimized. But God is justified, King David says in his words, and he is blameless in his judgment of sinners like he was with King David himself and his sin with Bathsheba. That's why, by the way, 2 Timothy 2.11 speaks both about the positive faithfulness of God and the judging righteousness of God. For it says this, 2 Timothy 2.11, The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with Him, we will also live with Him. You see, if we die with Christ, in Christ, we will live in and with Christ. If we endure, we will also reign with Him. That's the faithfulness of God. You can bank on that. You can be sure that if you are in Christ, if you've died with Him, You'll also live with Him. If you endure, even in the midst of struggle and suffering and persecution, you will reign with Christ. That's positive. That's saving righteousness. That's the faithfulness of God. But Paul says to Timothy in the second of those couplets, if we deny Him, He will also deny us. And then he says, if we are faithless... He remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. That's not talking about a a believer who somehow loses his faith. No believers lose their faith. That's talking about someone who has no faith. That's like these Jews here in chapter 3. If they are unfaithful, if they are faithless, what does God do if someone is faithless? Well, he remains faithful. Faithful to do what? Faithful to judge. Faithful to judge. He will judge all faithlessness. If you died with Christ, you will live with Christ. If you endured with Christ, you will reign with Christ. But if you deny Him, He will deny you. And if you are faithless, He will remain faithful to Himself. And He will remain faithful to judge all faithlessness. And what would be God's faithful judgment upon the Jews? What would it be primarily that He would say, You have been faithless regarding... Well, it's their 
acts of disobedience. Their sinfulness. And the Gentiles as well. From 118 all the way through this section, God has been hammering and hammering away at the idea that there is no righteous person. No, not one. And he's not even finished. He's going to give this summation in verse 9 through 20 of chapter 3 and it's not a pretty picture none is righteous no not one no one understands no one seeks for God all have turned aside together they have become worthless no one does good not even one their throat is an open grave they use their tongues to deceive the venom of asps is under their lips their mouth is full of curses and bitterness their feet are swift to shed blood in their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known there is no no fear of God before their eyes. It's their disobedience. And you know what their ultimate disobedience was? The ultimate of all disobedience? Rejecting Jesus Christ. Rejecting the Messiah. That's their, that's their ultimate disobedience. And that's why Paul says, you are, you are in danger of... The greatest act of disobedience is a failure to embrace Jesus Christ. That's true of us even here today. The greatest act of disobedience is for you not only to turn away from a message like this, but for the entirety of your church attendance or your regard for things Christian to fail to embrace Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. In the heart of circumcision of your life where God has taken out that heart of stone and he's put within it a heart of flesh so that the Holy Spirit can sprinkle clean water on you and that you'll be free free from the bondage of sin to reject that is the ultimate rejection and will bring the ultimate judgment of God oh God is faithful to bring ultimate salvation to his people. And when Paul comes to Romans 9, 10, and 11, he's going to wax eloquent upon those things. God's going to be faithful, and there's going to be a remnant of Jews for which God will, in fact, fulfill his promises. But for those who are not, who are not true Israel, who have not descended from the kind of heart righteousness, the circumcision of the heart that God requires, they'll be judged. They'll be judged. Oh, beloved, don't ever lose sight of the fact that He who is so faithful to us in mercy is also faithful in judgment. We must ascribe to both aspects of His character. His words will be justified, David says, and He will prevail as the judge. There's a third question. Look at verses 5 and 6. But if our unrighteousness, the unrighteousness of these Jews, if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, this judging righteousness, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? Here's another objection. What does it mean? But Paul... If God is seen as faithful and righteous in judging sin, if you're truly saying that God is glorified even in His judging righteousness and not just His saving righteousness, wouldn't our unrighteousness at Jews 
basically put his faithfulness on better display for the world to see? Uh, Wouldn't we be maximizing the world's look at the faithfulness of God by showing both his saving righteousness and his judging righteousness? And if so, wouldn't that actually show God to be unrighteous when this righteousness is put on display and then he turns around and inflicts his wrath on us? Doesn't that seem inconsistent for God? Faithfully judging and then turning around and in that faithful judgment inflicting wrath on us when we're the ones who are actually giving him cause to see his faithfulness be better placed on display? You see their point? They they bring out what they think is a logical fallacy in Paul's theology. But he responds to their objection by using that same strong negative in verse 6. By no means. No, 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 no. You're attempting again to destroy the very character of God. In other words, if the Jews are right in their objection here to question number 3, then Paul says at the end of verse 6, For then how could God judge the world? If, if your stipulation is true, Paul, that God is placed on grand display by His judging righteousness, and then He turns around and does that actual judging, then He's unrighteous. And if He's unrighteous, Paul says, then His character is questioned. And if His character is questioned, how can He then, then be the judge of the world? He's not going to be righteous. He's just like a, just like a man. Inconsistent, vacillating, not consistent with himself. He'd be inconsistent and therefore unable to be the righteous judge of the world. And I think for the real objection by the Jews to this, we must continue to remind ourselves of the context here in chapters 1 through 3. This is a section in his epistle where Paul is describing not simply God's judgment of sinners, but also a description of their sin. And this means, of course, that Paul is showing their total depravity, their complete inability to respond to God in obedience to His law. Which I think means implicitly, within this particular objection, are the Jews crying foul to Paul about his theology regarding their own anthropology, about who they are as persons. In essence, their argument might go something like this, which, by the way, is the reason Paul says in verse 5, I speak in a human way, or I'm accommodating myself to your logic or to your human wisdom. I don't want to speak like that. It's blasphemous to say what you're objecting to. I don't want to even characterize that. That's why I'm speaking in a human way. But their particular reasoning might go something like this. Paul If we are to agree with you that both Jews and Gentiles are under sin's curse without the human ability to respond righteously to God in any way and that because our will is entirely enslaved to sin. If that's your position, then it would also be your position that God's righteous character is therefore put on display when He judges us. He's seen as righteous when He judges our sin. But if this is the truth that it is actually a good thing for God's righteousness to be displayed in His condemnation of sinners, 
especially us as Jews, then why does God go on then to inflict wrath upon us when we have no true ability to respond? We can't do anything about it. We are unable to respond. So Paul, you can't have it both ways. God being seen as doing a good thing in judging us while then proceeding from there to inflict wrath upon us. That's inconsistent. If it's a good thing, showing His righteousness and His faithfulness and His goodness because of our inability to please Him, He's surely wrong then in inflicting wrath on us in our inability. It's not fair. You know, it's like that little nonsensical when someone says, based on a statement, whatever their statement is, and you say, that's good, and they say, no, that's bad. And they explain to you why it's bad, and you say, oh, no, no, that's, that's bad. And they say, no, 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 but that's good. And you say, well, that's good. And they say, no, 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 that's bad. They're trying to trap him. And this shows, by the way, the, the criticism of Paul, and I think even of God himself, that it's not new. It's not new. It's not new at all. There are always going to be people who surmise that man's inability implies that God is not righteous in condemning man. It's not what? Fair. It's not fair. If I don't have the ability to respond to God because of my sinfulness, then how could He righteously condemn me without my opportunity to respond? You ever heard that? Very common. Very common. And if God is righteous to condemn sinners, both Jew and Gentile alike, then is He really righteous? You see, the question follows right on the heels of the previous one about God's faithfulness. Is He really that faithful? How will God keep His promises and therefore considered to be faithful? And how will He be considered righteous in His judgment of the Jews if they're unable to respond in their wills to God? I can't respond. So, how are you righteous in condemning me? God, therefore, must be unrighteous to inflict wrath upon us. I mean, if we're totally depraved, if we're without the ability to respond to any spiritual stimuli, how can God be seen as fair in condemning man? It's a question... Paul is dealing with that we could say is the fundamental fairness of God. The fundamental fairness of God. How can He condemn me if my will is enslaved to my sin? And by the way, if you want to see the flip side of this argument, how can God be righteous, not just in condemning sinners who are unable to respond, but how can He choose certain others for heaven, for glory, for blessing? Look over at Romans 9, because that's the same argument, but from the flip side of things. In Romans 9, I read to you earlier, Romans 9, verses 4 to 5, 4 to 5 about the Israelites. They belong, the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs from their race, according to the flesh, is even the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Which, by the way, is one of the strongest verses in the New Testament that affirms the deity of Christ. God who is, uh, Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the Word of God has failed. 
For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. Be named. No, excuse me. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For that is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad. Why? In order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his call, she was told the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And someone's immediately going to say, now wait a minute, before they were born? Because of God's electing grace? And because of his damnation of others? Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated, even before they had done anything either good or bad? He anticipates the very same argument is Romans 3, but from the flip side, from the election side, not from the just judging side, but from the election side. Verse 14, what shall we say then? Which is his way of anticipating an objection, an objector. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? There's that negative. By no means. Me genoita. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. You say, that doesn't sound like a reason to me. You know what? It isn't a reason. It's a statement of fact. God says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Not in an arbitrary or capricious way. But because of the will of God, the decree of God, the electing grace of God, so that it depends then on, not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. It's God's choice. It's his sovereign choice. He anticipates someone saying, but that's not what? Fair. Verse 19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honored use and another, another for dishonorable use? You see, if, if man is indeed fallen, and when we get to Romans 5.12 and following, we'll find out our fallenness by Adam's curse. And if, by if because of Adam's fall and our own culpability and our own sinfulness, we are therefore incapable of responding to God. And then if God, by His sovereign plan and His purposes, His electing grace, chooses some, who are we to argue back to God? We're condemned sinners. But that's not fair. 
But they are sinners deserving the wrath of God. And if he chooses to elect Jacob and damn Esau, how is it that the clay says to the potter, why did you make me like this? Who are we, O men, to answer back to God? Sounds a lot like Job. I want to plead my case. I want a hearing. And in Job 42, to the end of the chapter, God basically says, Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? You have no right to question what I'm doing. I will have mercy on whom I choose, and I will harden whom I choose to harden. And mankind wants it both ways. On the one hand, they'll say, well, I'm really not that sinful. So when Paul comes along and says in Romans 3 that God is righteous in condemning you, they'll say, but that's not fair. But if on the other hand, we were to agree about our total depravity, our complete inability to respond in obedience, we'll say to God's sovereign choice in this text of Romans 9 to elect some and damn others, that's also not fair. But we can't have it both ways. God has both the righteous right to condemn sinners, even with their inability, and He has the sovereign right to elect some out of that condemnation so that He might manifest His mercy. And He has the sovereign right to do whatever He chooses. And with that, we come to question four. Let's call it the question of the propriety of God in judging the Jews along with the Gentiles. Look at verse 7. But if through my lie God's truth abounds to His glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? This question, I think, is probably continuing to hit on the issue of the fundamental fairness of God. But instead of the criticism coming from the divine side, like God's faithfulness in verse 5... This appears to be hitting from the human side, from the sinner's side of the ledger. might be something like this. But Paul, if through my, the Jews, lie, my untrustworthiness to obey, if through my lie, my disobedience, God's truth, His character, His righteousness, if it abounds to His glory, which incidentally could be a reference to the whole of Israel, because isn't Israel said to be in Isaiah 46, 13, Israel my glory? If, if through my lie, my untrustworthiness to obey God's truth abounds to His glory, if it truly abounds to Israel and the promises that you made to her and your glory and your glory through Israel then why are we continuing to be condemned along with the pagan world? If you've set this whole deal up so that we're your chosen people, that you've blessed us, you've given us all these spiritual privileges, and now you're telling us that instead of receiving blessings from God, you'll instead receive the cursings of God's judgment. Is that what you're saying, Paul? And if you're saying that, I have a problem with that. I have a problem with that. Because if it's through my untrustworthiness, my lie over against God's truth, then why are we continuing to be condemned along with the pagans? 
Now I say this may be what Paul has in mind here because of that last portion of the question, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? That may be a key for us to understanding that. What does that mean? Well, as I've told you many times now, the Jews were convinced that they were safe from God's judgment. And this righteous judging of God, that's for the Gentiles, not for the Jews. Oh, we want all of God's blessings. We want none of His cursings. We, we want all of the goodies. We don't want the downside. We're the Jews. We, we receive blessing. They're the pagan world. They're the Gentiles. Those are the Greeks over there. And they receive what? Cursings. We have all the good things. We're blessed. We're spiritually privileged. We have the covenants of promise. God made a promise to us, not to any of the other nations. We ought to be receiving the blessings and not the cursings. And if you're telling us that by my disobedience, God's truth abounds to His glory, then why are we continuing to be condemned along with those irreligious people? They don't deserve anything. They, they're the ones that deserve hell. Not us. In fact, the Jews even call the pagans around them Gentile sinners, according to Paul in Galatians 2.15. They're, they're the Gentile sinners over there. Oh, I can see God's just judgment of them. That's easy to see. Because they're pagans. They don't know any better. They don't have the oracles of God. They haven't been blessed. But, but you're telling me that through my lie, the Jews, and our disobedience, that we are actually, along with the Gentiles, going to receive a just condemnation? How so? How so? And apparently that is so egregious, so unthinkable as an objection to Paul. He doesn't even answer it. Look, there's no response. You see that? There's no response. He just goes into question number five. And we could call that the question of sinning in order to bring about greater good. He, he just rolls right into this. Here's another objection. And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, verse 8. Ah, so now we know for sure that there are a group of people who are going around and slanderously reporting about Paul and maybe the other apostles that they have this kind of theology. Let us do evil that good may come. See, and it might tie all the way back to this faithfulness of God issue. Look, if you're telling me that God is seen on this faithful display, then let's give Him all of the opportunity to express His faithfulness. We continue to do evil, 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 and He continues to give us good, good, good. That's the argument. And why not do evil that good may come? If all of the good is this manifold expression of God's faithfulness, then let's give Him an opportunity. I think this is an argument not by the Jews per se, but that's what they're criticizing Paul for. That's your theology. You, you seem to be asserting that we ought to do evil that good may come. Paul, you're an antinomian. You're a person who is disobedient to the law of God. 
You must be saying that sinners ought to send up a storm so that God's glory may abound all the more. And if God is seen as faithful in dealing with us, surely your position is, why not do more evil that more of God's goodness may be seen in the world? Paul says, literally, they blaspheme us regarding their teaching. That word slanderously, blasphemy. This is blasphemy. We don't teach this way, but they're slandering us and they're saying that's what we teach. Paul would never encourage anyone to do more evil that good may come out of it. Never. That's another may genoita. May it never be. Absolutely not. This is slanderous. This is blasphemous. He does say in Romans 8.28 that God will use sin, right? God causes all things to work together for good. He's going to use it, but He never says, do it more so that good may result. Never. And He just concludes those last two objections, those last two questions, by simply this, the last sentence, their condemnation is just. Those who purport such things, those who slander us with these falsehoods, only show that their condemnation as sinners is just. His condemnation of them is righteous, just as he's been saying throughout the whole of chapter 2. Now you surely are asking as we come to the close this morning what implications there are from this text for your life. Well, I've hinted at a few. Listen to Douglas Moo's summary regarding this passage. The problem Paul attacks in these verses is not confined to the people of God of his day. All too often we Christians have presumed that God's grace to us exempts us from any concern about our sin. Particularly is this a danger among Christians who share with me the belief that God sovereignly maintains the regenerate in their salvation till the end. Too easily do we forget that God's ultimate concern is for His own glory and not for our blessing. That His righteousness is beautifully displayed when He judges as well as when He saves. We want to stand on the promises, and this is entirely appropriate. But we must not forget that God promises in the New Testament as well as the Old Testament to rebuke and chastise His people for sin as well as to bless them out of the abundance of His grace. So we have to have both sides. Oh yes, we rejoice in God's saving righteousness. We do. But we must also be aware of and understand the true nature of His judging righteousness. And Paul has made it clear to us. Yes, it is true that if you're a genuine believer, God's judging righteousness has already come to pass when God poured out His wrath on Christ for you. That's true. But that's if you're a genuine believer. If you're a true child of God. But if you're not... You're presently under the wrath of God, awaiting His final, ultimate judging of righteousness when you die. And if you're not standing there robed in the righteousness of Christ, you'll be judged fiercely, harshly, and forever. Don't leave this place this morning without repenting. Don't leave this morning without 
placing your confidence, your trust, your assurance in Jesus Christ alone. Oh, but if you do, you'll experience the wonder of having averted His judging righteousness and being under His saving righteousness, the righteousness of Christ, and you'll be delivered from the wrath to come. Let's pray together. Father, we do indeed ask You to deliver us from the wrath to come. Oh Lord, we don't come to You on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to Your mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit who is poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ. We cry out for that saving righteousness, the righteousness of Christ. We don't have it. We are unable. We have an inability. We cannot respond to spiritual stimuli. We, we must have Christ and Him alone to save us so that we avert the just judging righteousness of God. Well, I pray for you that if you are not truly a child of God, you would embrace Him. Confess. Repent. Turn. Acknowledge that you have no righteousness in and of yourself. You need a righteousness that is alien to you, outside of you. The righteousness of Christ in His life and death so that You would be atoned for, delivered from the wrath to come. Oh, and if you're a believer here this morning, you are rejoicing abundantly in the already saving righteousness of God which you have received. Enjoy that. Bask in that. And thank God for that every day of your life. And then share that with others. We thank you, Father, for this message. And for what you're doing in the hearts of men and women by your Spirit. For Jesus' sake, amen.